Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. By encouraging first-time attendees to come back the following week and listen to our real preacher, by which he's referring to me. And that's comical because anybody who is paying attention around here knows the history of our church, knows that Jim was our senior minister for 34 years and taught me everything that I know about preaching. In fact, Jim has probably forgotten more about preaching than I'll ever get around to learning. And so I'm so thankful for Jim's leadership and his humility and his friendship and his 43 years of service just to this church family. It really is incredible. But if you were here last week or if you watched online, you probably noticed one very glaring and obvious difference between my preaching and Jim's preaching. In fact, Jim took time to point it out last week as he was sitting on a chair up here on the stage, preaching from a seated position and pointing out how I usually preach standing up. In fact, Jim last week even called your attention to a verse in John chapter 8 that describes a time when Jesus taught a large crowd of people while he was sitting down and everybody around him was standing and gathering to listen to what he had to say. And I was watching Jim's message online later in the week and listening to what he was sharing with y'all last Sunday. And I heard his message and I thought to myself, well, maybe he's on to something. Maybe he's on to something with this idea of sitting down while he preaches. And I was considering whether it was time for me to make a change. And then I stumbled across Mark chapter 13, verse 13, where Jesus says, whoever stands firm until the end will be saved. And I thought to myself, nah, I better not. I better leave the chair backstage. I'm just going to stay on my feet up here. But anyway, thanks to Jim, we are still forging ahead in our Together series. And this series of messages has been all about the significance of the relationships that exist between us, the significance of our horizontal relationships with each other as followers of Jesus. You know, from time to time, I will hear somebody make a claim that says, you know, my faith is really more of a personal thing. It's more of a private matter, and I don't think it's necessary to my spiritual journey to be an active part of a community of other disciples. I hear that argument made from time to time, but throughout this series, what we've been learning together is that our connection to God, our relationship to God grows and it gets stronger in the context of community. We actually have a deeper connection to God when we have a connection to God's people. And reciprocally, reciprocally at the same time, our relationships in community, our relationships with each other get better and they get stronger and they get deeper and more meaningful when we as individuals are walking with God. And so it's a cycle. There's this beautiful flow of spiritual growth that happens when followers of Jesus do their discipleship together. 
when we share what's happening in our spiritual lives, when we share the journey, when we walk together in this journey with God, we get this opportunity to be there for each other in the highs and the lows. We get an opportunity to help each other with our weaknesses and to serve one another. And so these human connections that we have between Christians, they can kind of carry us along when the going gets tough. And having relationships like we can have in the church with brothers and sisters in the faith, they can provide crucial support for our souls, except when they don't. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes we run into relational problems with each other. Sometimes these relationships don't actually live up to what's advertised. And, and you got to ask yourself, in fact, I'm posing the question this morning, what do we do when these horizontal relationships that exist between us start to run into trouble? What happens when some challenge arises between us some disagreement happens among all of our church family. Somebody gets offended. Some offense is taken. What happens when something bad occurs and then suddenly the relationships that used to be so life-giving for us are all of a sudden more pain, painful and they're conflicted? You know, it doesn't take much for sweet church relationships to turn sour. You stick around church long enough and you'll hear some wild stories. Some wild stories about people whose connection, their relationships with each other, fell apart over some silly issue that a group of four-year-olds ought to have been able to solve given enough time. But there was just too much investment, too much on the line, too much at stake for us to even be able to move past it. I've seen churches that have split right down the middle over questions like, who gets to have have a key to the building or a question like who gets to decide how we decorate the stage in the auditorium I heard of one church and this is a true story one church that had a serious long-standing argument between its members over whether or not it was Christian to bring deviled eggs to the church potluck lunch right and of course the answer is yes. If you tasted deviled eggs, you got to have those. It's not a potluck without those. But I see why the, you know, somebody was a little bit uncomfortable with the name. But I mean, I've seen churches and heard about churches that have all kinds of tension and problems over little silly little stuff. But maybe... Maybe the more depressing stories are the ones where there's this dark cloud of suspicion and mistrust and hard feelings that doesn't get dealt with. It never gets reconciled. I knew one church decades ago. They built a brand new church building, and it was at a prominent spot in the city where everybody in town was going to be able to see this building as they were going about their business. And so one, church, one family in the church gave a donation for a large cross to be well, that family like this can be delicate. Church connection like this can be delicate, and it can be tempting to let our offenses, our past offenses, and our present disagreements start to come between us. But this morning, I want to share with you about how the earliest Christian teachers, the people who spent time with Jesus and were commissioned to share the good news about Jesus with generations to come, including us, these earliest Christian teachers taught that sticking together is what Christians are called to do. They taught that we are called to resist division and fight for unity. Now, we know how to fight, right? 
It's just the fighting for unity that can be problematic. But we are fortunate. We're fortunate that we have some helpful writings that were handed down from some of these earliest Christian teachers that give us guidance on what to do when we find ourselves in that kind of a situation. And it's all based on remembering what's this community really for. And so today I want to direct our attention to an ancient letter that was written to a church very much like like ours to help them keep their eyes on the goal that was most important. We know this letter is the book of Philippians. You can find it in the New Testament portion of your Bible, or if you've got the Heritage app on your phone, you can click through to today's sermon text and find it there. But you need to know a couple of things about Philippians as we get started. You need to know that Philippians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, the same guy who is the namesake of cities like St. Paul, Minnesota and Sao Paulo, Brazil. You need to know that St. Paul or Apostle Paul wrote this letter nearly 2,000 years ago, and he wrote it to a small church in this small city on the coast of Greece, and it was a, it was a Roman colony. In fact, the church in this little city of Philippi was probably the very first Christian church on the continent of Europe, which is a really incredible claim to fame, you know? But Paul had preached there. He had traveled to Philippi, and he had told people about Jesus, and he watched as people had their lives changed as they started to understand and believe the message of Jesus. And at one point, Paul's message was so disruptive to the community in Philippi that some of the unbelievers or the non-believers actually attacked and beat and imprisoned Paul, threw him in jail overnight. But in the middle of the night, God miraculously shook the jail as if with an earthquake, shook the jail where the walls broke open and the chains fell off. And there was Paul and his friends who had been arrested. And the jailer who was in charge of keeping track of them, keeping watch on them, he was so amazed and awestruck by what he had just witnessed that he said, I want to be a follower of your God too. Didn't even have to hear a message. He just watched as God acted in their midst. And so Paul's ministry efforts in Philippi were really successful. And he stuck around there for a while to preach and teach, but eventually he left and went on to other cities and other places to plant more churches and tell more people about Jesus. But he was always eager to hear a report about how things were going back in Philippi. This is one of the cities that was really near and dear to his heart. One of the places where he had built some meaningful relationship and they had gone through a lot together. And so 12 years after he left Philippi, Paul heard a report from one of his friends about how things were going back there. And that report is actually what prompted the writing of this letter. At the time... Paul was sitting somewhere in a Roman prison cell. We don't know exactly what city he was in, but it was a Roman colony somewhere, and he wasn't sure if he would ever get out of that cell alive. He didn't know if he was going to be released or if he was going to die in prison, but he was confident that either way, whether he was released back into the ministry or released to time with God in heaven, he was not worried about it, and he was trusting that God had a plan for his life and trusting that God had a plan for the churches that he had planted. And so he addressed this letter to that church, that little church in Philippi, probably meeting in somebody's house. It's not a real big group, but he addresses this letter to this church in Philippi. He has a friend smuggle it out of the jail and carry it all of that way so that they can read it 
from the, during the middle of their worship service. I mean, they're going to be spending time worshiping together, and somebody's going to read this letter from Paul. And Paul is bragging on them. I mean, he's telling them about how proud he is of the things he's heard about their generosity. He's talking about how excited he is about the ways that they have persevered in the face of persecution that's been happening in their own city. He's congratulating them and telling them his excitement about their growth in Jesus Christ because Paul knew these people well. He had history with these people. He had watched. He was like the spiritual midwife who had been there as they were reborn into new life in Christ. And this were, this were like people that were his spiritual children or nieces or nephews. He was confident God is working on them, helping them grow into maturity in Jesus. But Paul also had a few concerns. Based on the report that he had heard, he had a few things he wanted to bring up. He knew that they were enduring some persecution, that Philippi was not a city that was particularly friendly to Christians, and that that was going to be challenging for these people's faith. And he knew that their spiritual future really depended on their ability to stay connected, to lean on one another. And he wanted them to remember that God had been orchestrating this the whole time, that God had brought them the joy of connection with Jesus, and that God had brought them into partnership with one another, and that had changed their entire lives, and that's the theme of this letter. And we actually see that theme start to emerge at the end of chapter 1 when Paul says, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, no matter what you go through, no matter what you experience, he says, keep living into this story. And then he follows that up by saying, then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, don't miss this part, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And what you're hearing is that for Paul, it's hugely important that Christians band together. He couldn't bear the thought of seeing them divided. He couldn't bear the thought of seeing them separated from one another. He wanted them to learn to lean on one another. And so his instruction says, stay together. Keep striving together as one. Go as a group. Keep carrying one another. He wanted them to be unified. He wanted them to be cohesive. He wanted them to be clear about their shared purpose and moving in the same direction. In fact, he continued his appeal in the very next chapter, which begins like this. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit, if you have any tenderness or compassion. Now, let me stop there and say, he's not asking for like people to reflect and say, oh, I may have had some of that. He's, ask, he's saying, if you have this, like, if you can hear the sound of my voice. The reason you're in this room, the reason that you're gathered with these people is because you've experienced this. He's reminding them of what they've already been through. He says, if Christ has been a part of your life at all, if it's made any difference for you, then, verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and being of one mind. 
And what you're hearing here is that constantly Paul is saying we're supposed to be a part of one body together. It's not just a collection of individuals. It's supposed to be a cohesive unit. He's reminding them of the blessings God has already bestowed and saying if that means anything to you, if that's had any impact on your life, then stick to the same trajectory. Keep going the same way. Stick together. Move in the same direction. Be like-minded. What Paul is trying to tell them, trying to convince them of, is that unity is the capstone of our communal experience of God. This is what God is aiming for among us. Unity is the pinnacle that we are focused on. Unity is the summit that we are climbing. It's the journey that we're pursuing. All of our individual relationships with God, all of our individual interactions with God are pointing us toward a community that's cohesive. Our vertical relationship is making unified horizontal relationships possible. And maybe you've felt it before. Maybe you've had just a little taste of it before. Maybe you've had a moment where you thought, boy, this feels like something, a relationship, a kind of relationship between people that only God could create. You know, I often say that our church is at its best when we're serving together. Now, in all of the years I've been a part of this church family, when we roll up our sleeves and when we show up to help our neighbors, to help the community, to help people who have gone through a disaster, that's when our church fires on all cylinders. And God's love inspires us and equips us and teaches us to invest in caring for other people. And it's an awesome thing to see. I mean, it's beautiful, it's inspiring, it's incredible. But when there's conflict... When there's conflict that exists between us, when members of the church are at odds with one another, it makes the beauty of the unity difficult to see. It obscures the beauty of what God has been creating among us. And Paul knew that this was a specific problem at Philippi. The report that had gotten back to him told him about a relationship between two people, two prominent women in their church, where these women had stumbled into some sort of disagreement and they hadn't worked things out. And so in chapter 4, Paul continues with the theme that he's been on this whole time, but he addresses these two ladies specifically. Here's what he says. He says, I plead with Euodia, and I'm just guessing on the pronunciation of these you know, ancient Greek names, so you can say them how you want to. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He says, I want these two women to be of the same mind. And then he turns his attention to the other readers who are listening to this letter, and he says, help these women, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Now, remember I told you, there's being read in public in a worship service. And I don't know what that format looked like. I don't know exactly how many people were in the room. But I imagine that when whoever was reading this letter got to this part, it looked something like this. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche. And these two ladies are sitting on opposite sides of the room giving each other the side eye because their tension between them is like a well-known thing. 
Like everybody in the room knows about what's been happening between these two ladies. Can you imagine what it was like for them to be called out like that? while this was being read. I mean, here's these two ladies who have been members of this church in Philippi since it got started. And this is the only time their names are mentioned in the entire Bible. And we're not sure what their disagreement was about. We don't know how long they'd been at it. We don't know whether the issue was something that we would call trivial or something that we would say was major. What we do know is that it was significant enough for Paul to bring it up. And Paul's not trying to embarrass them here. He's trying to call them to something bigger. He's trying to call them to a vision that's bigger than their disagreement. He's trying to call them to an agreement that's larger than what has currently had them separated. And then he's inviting the rest of the church to be a part of the solution. Because when Paul thinks about this old church, this little church at Philippi, he's thinking about this brave team of people that he left behind to finish an important job, which was to demonstrate life in Christ in a city that was unfriendly to Christians. But he also knows that if the team can't be unified, the mission hurts. The mission is at risk. He knows that when people on the team can't get along, the whole team is affected. And so notice what Paul asks these two ladies to do. Or first, notice what he doesn't ask them to do. He doesn't say, Yodia and Syntyche, I need the two of you to sit down together and just commit to stay at the table until you figure out the right answer. He doesn't intervene and overrule and tell them what the right answer to their disagreement should be. He doesn't make his own decision about who's right and who's wrong. He doesn't recommend that these two ladies go to the church leaders and ask their opinion or have them choose a side and clear up the issue. What he asks them to do is be of the same mind in the Lord. He doesn't choose a side. He asks them to choose something bigger. He doesn't take sides in the argument between them, he asks them to leave the argument behind. Some translations say, say that he asks them to agree with one another in the Lord. Now, if these two ladies have been having a serious argument, Paul's not interested in finding the right answer. He's not interested in being the arbiter or the mediator between the two of them. He doesn't seem concerned about figuring out the most efficient solution. In fact, he's not even worried about what will happen if they make the wrong decision and get the wrong answer in whatever they're trying to discuss and figure out. What he's after is unity. What he's after is cohesion. He's looking for agreement about the things that are most important, and he wants that agreement to overrule every other more minor thing. And he knows that if these ladies just choose to avoid each other and Yodia stays on this side of the room and Syntyche stays on this side of the room, he knows that if they keep that up, it's going to hurt the efforts of the whole team. And he knows that if they get together and they try to mediate and figure out the, the right answer to their disagreement, one of them's going to end up being called right and the other one's going to end up being called wrong. And one of them's going to feel like they won the argument and one of them's going to feel like they lost the argument. And in the end, it's going to hurt the morale of the team. You see, Paul knew that there are some battles that cost too much to win. There are some arguments that even if you win the disagreement, you've hurt the greater cause. Because on a team, if one member of the team wins an argument, 
the team still suffers because the other side feels defeated. And so Paul's asking these ladies, Paul's asking this church to follow Jesus' example and to nip their disagreement in the bud because they're appealing to something higher. And he says the way to do that is to be of the same mind in the Lord. We're called to make unity this priority among us. And it means that sometimes we're going to have to look past the differences that exist. Sometimes we're going to have to just trust that the things that we disagree about, the things that we see differently, the things that we understand differently, the different backgrounds and points of view that we bring to the conversation, we're going to have to trust that our connection to God is bigger and stronger than agreement on all of those minor issues. We're going to have to trust that God is looking for peace and unity among us above everything else. I saw this meme recently that was meant to describe what it's like to grow up with siblings. I mean, how, how many of you have siblings? You know, you know you're going to recognize this here in a second. This scene comes from a 15th century Italian painting, and it features these two men, one of whom has unfortunately just been shot in the eye with an arrow. You know, like it's this gruesome, horrible moment, but certainly not, this is not going to be what the original painter intended, but the meme depicts the other man as the brother of the victim, and he's saying to him, I'm sorry, you're fine, you're fine, please don't tell mom. <laughs> about being shot in the eye with the arrow. And if you grew up with siblings, you've had that conversation. You know how that goes. Because when you're growing up with siblings, it doesn't matter what disagreement you were having. It doesn't matter who was at fault. It doesn't matter what tension was between you. When you hear one of the parents' footsteps coming down the hall, there's an urgency to just figure out a way to get past it, right? There's an urgency to say, you know what, it's going to be okay. You're fine. You're fine. I'm sorry. There's an urgency to say, mom and dad are looking for us to get along. Mom and dad are expecting us to work it out. Mom and dad are expecting us to make peace with each other, and that's more important. And Paul's message to the Philippians is kind of like that. He's not depicting God as a frightening parent, but he is reminding the believers that there are priorities that are more important than getting our way. There are priorities in our community that are more important than being right. He's reminding the believers that if the good news of Jesus has really had an effect, then unity is the result. And he's reminding the believers that if we aren't experiencing unity, then we've still got work to do in fully realizing and embodying the good news of Jesus. This is who we're called to be. I grew up in a small church, quite a bit smaller than this one, and it was small enough that everybody in the room knew everybody, and we were able to have lots of little traditions that we could carry out because everybody knew what to expect. But one of my favorite traditions in that little church where I grew up happened at the end of the service anytime somebody decided to be baptized and become a follower of Jesus. And after that service was over, after the baptism happened, we would all gather in a circle around the communion table. And it, it, the circle, because of the shape of the room and the arrangement of the pews, it actually looked more like a cross, which was kind of cool, a symbolism thing. 
But we would be gathered in this circle together and we would hold hands with each other and the minister would say something inspirational about the baptism that just happened and welcoming this person to the family of God and then we would sing a song together and it was always the same song, every time. And the song said, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with chains or cords that cannot be broken. It said, bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. And I got to tell you, that was a beautiful, aspirational song. We did not successfully live that out all the time. Because we were still a community of humans that were messed up. And so there were people in that community who liked each other and didn't like each other. There were people in that community who had history that was sometimes wasn't pretty. There were people in that community who liked what the church was doing or liked what the minister was doing, and then there were some who didn't. There were people in that community who didn't get along, and they just ignored each other, and they intentionally sat on opposite sides of the room so that they never really had to cross paths. But whenever somebody would be baptized, whenever we would gather in that circle, we would sing this aspirational song that said, bind us together, Lord. Do what we can't do, God. Bind us together with love. And don't let our connection to each other be based on absolute agreement with everything. Don't let our connection with each other be based on uniformity because unity can exist without uniformity. But God, let our connection to each other be based on love. And we prayed that prayer. We sang that song, asking God to do what only God could do. We gathered around that table and we joined hands and we said, God, we're trying. God, we want to be not only in, a, in a, a unified relationship with each other where we can experience that together, we also want the world to see us loving each other. And so God, do what only you can do. And as we gathered around that communion table, we submitted ourselves once again to letting God work through us.